This podcast is proudly sponsored by Fastline Marketing Group. Fastline has been serving farmers and the ag industry for over 40 years and is in the name you can trust. Check out fastline.com for your latest equipment needs and fastlinemarketinggroup.com for their full suite of print and digital marketing capabilities. Fastline Marketing Group, the farmer resource and the marketing partner of choice for the agricultural community. Fastline.com. Welcome to North American Egg Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak. I'm very excited today. I'm talking to a frequent guest of the Glenn Beck Show. Uh, that's where I first heard of him. And he's been engaged in public land policy since he was a teen and worked as a private public land consultant, spent seven years working in the U.S. Senate as a digital media specialist. He's currently the executive director of Blue Ribbon Coalition, which protects access to millions of acres of public land. From New Harmony, Utah, I'd like to welcome Ben Burr. Welcome, Ben, and thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chrissy. So first of all, tell me a bit about your background and how you became interested in public land policy. Uh, Yeah, so my background is actually in helicopter logging. Uh, My family was in the helicopter business, and uh, most farmers, I don't know that they'd consider logging a form of agriculture, but you deal with the Forest Service, and that's housed within the Department of Agriculture. And so we would go out and harvest timber out in the forests in the West, and you'd go cut them down, and you'd fly the logs down to a helicopter landing somewhere where they could be trucked out. And so I was a logger. And mm-hmm. in the midst of all that, as a teenager, we would be in places like Oregon or Northern California or elsewhere. And you'd run into the kind of the radical fringes of the environmental movement where they would show up and try to block us from accessing the roads where we were trying to go logging at a time where they had built some teepees on the road and handcuffed little children to the top of it so that we wouldn't try to remove them or take them down. Oh my! And so I got introduced to the craziest sides of these public land debates early on and always have interested me since then. I went and worked in the U.S. Senate for a period of time. And in the West, you don't work in the Senate without also getting a lot of coverage on what's going on with the public land issues. Because, uh, I mean, I was there during like the Bundy standoff and uh, a lot of those things where the agricultural producers really felt like they were being trampled on by overreaching federal government agencies and whatnot. And so I got interested in that. I left and went worked with a Forest Service supervisor who trained me how to go do advocacy work, helping ranchers keep their permits and be able to continue grazing on public land. And so I've worked a lot with the ranching community. Uh, so I, And now I work for, as you said, Blue Ribbon Coalition, which is actually focused on outdoor recreation. Like our primary members and users are all uh, ATVers and motorcycle riders and snowmobilers, and uh, we've got we've gotten really involved in water issues. So we have a lot of folks in the motorboat and houseboat community. And one thing I've tried to teach the recreation users is that the the grazing users, the agricultural users, as we'd call them, the mining claim owners, we all have a lot of common interests, but we don't work together very often on things. And it's it's unfortunate because if we did, we would have a really big, powerful movement of people that want to replace what I consider to be a really problematic administrative state that's making life difficult for all kinds of people in a thousand different ways. Right. And 
the agricultural producers are on the front lines of this everywhere you look. Yeah, that's it. And if we can get a united front to try to do something, that's that's the best bet, right? Yeah, I would like to see that. And so I, I follow the agricultural issues as well, um, but and I have a pretty broad policy background. And so just happy to be here. Awesome. And so can you start by explaining the administration's push uh, toward 30 by 30 and what are they trying to do? Yeah, so 30 by 30 is a funny one because it's kind of been cooking around behind the scenes for a while. And if you live out West, you've already been a victim of this movement forever. I mean, we've like every president's going to go designate a couple million acre national monuments, which basically just draws lines on a map and says, you can't do stuff in this area anymore. Uh, my organization is actually suing the Biden administration right now over the designations of the Bears Ears National Monument and the Grand Staircase National Monument uh, co-defendants or I guess co-plaintiffs on that lawsuit is a ranching family that is the monument designations that are making their lives incredibly difficult to run their operations. And we know from history that a lot of times they just run out of business by the government when they're in these monument boundaries. And so we, although we're kind of coming at that from the recreation angle, we partnered with ranchers. We want to make sure everyone's interests are protected in that. And that whole effort to kind of set aside land to where it can't be used for anything is what has morphed into what we now call the 30 by 30 movement. And that's where the the conservation crowd that wants to close off public utilization of our natural resources has designed, it's essentially a marketing campaign. They basically just say, we want to protect 30 percent of our public or of our lands and waters not just public they mean private as well with that yeah. by 2030 and and so I, there was an organization called the American Stewards for Liberty that they got turned into like some group that looks at nonprofit organizations for I don't know what the, but they were saying they were doing something wrong because they were out lobbying against 30 by 30 and I'm like you can't lobby against 30 by 30 there's not a piece of legislation. There's not a like this is a marketing campaign. It's not even a real policy. And so Biden did an executive order or something that just says we like the ideas of 30 by 30 and the and the land agencies and the federal agencies are going to when they do their plans and their rules and their regulations and things, it needs to be part of 30 by 30. And I'm like, you have no statutory authority for this. There's no basis for this. You just dreamed this up out of nowhere and you're now acting like the executive branch has some sort of legislative authority, which it doesn't. There's no mandate from Congress, but that doesn't mean they're not justifying using this to justify all kinds of things. Right. And so the way it's being implemented is you don't see some edict come out that says 30 by 30, we now have, here's the 30% of Florida that we want that needs to be protected. That's not how it's working. The way it's working is, well, I'm using the Antiquities Act to designate a national monument, and we're counting that as a an effort towards 30 by 30. And for you, for those of you that are back east or or somewhere that's not where there's a lot of public land, the way this is playing out is you have partners with the administration and the conservation movement. So these will be a, an organization that might come knocking on your door one day, to, to, telling you all the great, amazing things about a conservation easement. And if you will forever, forever put your productive land into a into a legal 
straight jacket that can never be used for anything. We'll give you a, a pittance now and buy it from you. And, and so, and then they'll take that land. They'll take ownership of it. And then you have programs in the federal government where they federal government has a permanent authorization of funding to acquire land from private landholders. And then they'll buy it from these conservation organizations and put it into the federal estate. So I call it land laundering or wilderness laundering. We're taking money, out, land out of the private private ownership and laundering it into the public estate so that it can't be used for anything. And if you're a farmer and you haven't encountered this in your career, then you, uh, then you're either lucky or you're just not paying attention. And it's hard because you have a lot of agricultural producers where passing on their farm. When I talk to ranchers in the West, I ask them what their succession plan is. One in five has a real plan of their kids want to take it over. Four and five have no idea. And they're all getting older. And so when that conservation group comes knocking on your door, throwing maybe a million dollars at Adam, or, uh, it, it might look like a lot of money now, but if you blow that up to scale to where this could really be used to take away 30% of our productive land, right? that starts to become they're selling out the farm of the whole nation one by one, and they all have their own reasons to do it. And I'd never judge somebody's moral decision to do that in that vacuum of their own personal situation. But collectively, these, this laundering of land out of private production into the public estate, we will look back on it as a huge national mistake. Yeah. And yeah. a conservation easement is the only thing more restrictive than a wilderness designation. And so once it's in that easement there, I don't think you'll ever see it come back unless there's some sort of revolution that overthrows the current legal codes that govern this country. Right. Wow. And so people should be really cautious about that. And that is part of the 30 by 30 agenda, even if they're not telling you that. I see. And you were uh, on Glenn Beck a few months ago and you were talking about the Bureau of Land Management land grab in Oregon. Uh, uh -huh. And that was shocking where people have now lost access to their own cabins. How can this even happen? That one's a long story, but just to really, I mean, the, it, and, and I'll tell you every time I, I tell that story in a public forum like this or Glenn mm -hmm. Beck or wherever, a dozen people come out of the woodwork with the same story. And so their story is is incredibly unique, but at the same time, it's the same story that we've heard over and over again. When your neighbor is the federal government and people get in fights with neighbors all the time. Uh, and if you get in a fight with your neighbor, you either work it out, you go knock on their door and you say, hey, your cow's got in my yard. Can you build a fence or something? And you work it out. And if and if it becomes hostile, then you take them to civil court and the court system fixes the problem at the end of the day. If your neighbor is the federal government, they have the full might and force of the regulatory authority of the government. Uh, they most likely will control all the land and the roads and everything surrounding you. And if they decide they want to dispossess you of your property, they have 10,000 different ways they can do it, Wow! but they'll do it and they'll make your life miserable. They'll make it either impossible to access your land. They'll deny you a grazing permit because a permit, a grazing permit is a property right in the West. It's actually, you own the forage on the public ground and yeah, it's complicated they call it split estate and a mineral rights the same way like you can go drill an oil well on public ground and if you find it you can claim it and then you own the oil but you don't own the ground i see and so the grazing is the same way you own the forage but not the ground mm -hmm. and so 
they'll do all kinds of things to basically make your life miserable. The point being that it becomes so expensive to fight them that it's easier just to walk away from it all. Then your property is now sitting there as something that's really only worth nothing. And so here then come the conservation groups. Well, we'll buy that from you. And then they sell it back to the federal government. They buy it from you from pennies of the dollar because you're at the end of your wits. Then they sell it for a premium to the government once they take control of it. And I don't know if that's how the situation will play out in Oregon, but what's happening there is they're basically not letting them use a road that they've used to access their property since 1906. And now they're saying that because of a flood, the road got washed out. They can't use it anymore, but they have used it. They've successfully safely driven up the road. You do have to cross a river a few times. So it's not, you're not going to get up there in a Honda Civic. Um, but as long as you have the right vehicles and things, you can safely get to the houses using the public dirt road. And just so you know, like out West, that's really common that you'll have a dirt road that goes and crosses streams and kind of gets you from point A to point B because the train's so rugged to build really well-engineered highways and things is just 10 times the cost as building them in Kansas or something. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so that was the tool here. I mean, I've helped a rancher where they just denied him a trailing permit. They wouldn't even let him use a road, walk his cows up the road to his private property up in the mountains. And I had wow. to help him get his permit back. And so it's a it's a fight that always takes on a thousand different flavors, but the outcomes tend to be the same if someone like me doesn't come help you figure it out and and get them off your back. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a real problem for and and my concern is that it doesn't happen to enough people that it creates change in the political system. In in these rural areas, this is always the fight. Like you have rural areas that have really different needs and challenges with the government. They're always going to be overpowered by the urban center somewhere else yeah. where all the concentration of voters are. So they have real no political power to help themselves. And that's what's happening here. And I'm just like, when I first started doing this work, I was like, well, it's hard to mobilize the public to say this is one day this will be you. Because if you're not ranching on public land, it might not ever be you. Yeah, that's it. And then COVID happened and it became everybody overnight. And so if you were a business owner that was hurt by the heavy handed, one size fits all way we reacted to COVID, you now tasted for maybe a few weeks and months. And now that's trickling down into years. What these people have been living with since, since statehood or frontiers time, like this has been a constant problem for these agricultural producers in the West. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good way to put it too, that if it, if it hasn't, if it didn't happen to you before COVID, it probably did in some way infringe on you during COVID, right? So yeah, everybody got a big healthy taste of what the administrative state can be capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. the way it turned neighbors against neighbors yeah. and everybody then decided instead of solving problems as a neighbor to a neighbor, it's I'm going to weaponize the government to get what I want out of the system now. And you have business owners that are just trying to run an honest business who are turned into a criminal overnight because they're not doing some arbitrary thing like wearing a mask or whatever the the virtue signal of the day was. Yeah. And it and that's there's a lot of different ways that's played out. And and I would argue, I mean, like you we were talking about WOTUS before the show, the water of the United States rule. I mean, that's another example of this where 
I'm hoping some of the agricultural producers listen to this and be like, well, well, you know what he's talking about. It's this water thing. And and that's the same thing. It's like an arbitrary rule. Congress writes as a vague law that means nothing. The Supreme Court's probably said two or three times now. What you you, the EPA, aren't interpreting this correctly. But we, the court, it's not our job to tell you what this means. It's Congress's job. And Congress is like, whose job? What? Us? We're not going to. What? No, you guys figure it out. We already passed the law. We're not going to touch this again. And so we're stuck in this ping pong of who's going to figure out what water the United States government owns in this country. And according to them, if it has an oxygen molecule with two hydrogen molecules on it, it's theirs. (laughs) Yeah, well said. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know that's the big fear of a lot of a lot of farmers across the U.S. right now is that in the spring, you've got low areas. Now, under the current ruling, that could be considered that could be considered uh, water owned by the government. And um, yeah, so it just depends on time of year if somebody comes out to visit. So do you know with the change in uh, in the house, is this something do you think that 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 would be addressed? Yeah, I well, I think the house probably will try because this is the ping pong. This everyone wants to hit this ping pong ball when it's their turn yeah. to hit it. Yeah. Um, but if they don't have cooperation in the Senate, which I doubt they will, it'll probably just be kind of a a messaging bill, not one that gets done. Um, I know that I was in the Senate when Republicans and Trump got elected and Republicans took over the House and the Senate, and I know there were efforts happening behind the scenes for them to pass what's called the RAINS Act. Regular, I think it's the idea. I don't remember what it means, but the it's one of those fancy acronyms. But what the bill does is if it, if the agencies enact a, a rule, a regulatory rule, so this isn't a law, this is Congress saying, we're not going to make the law, but we think you guys should come up with it because you're the experts. And so they draft a rule through an administrative rulemaking process but if that costs, causes more than $500 million of impact, even if they go through that process, the rule doesn't go into effect unless Congress passes it as well with an okay. up or down vote. And so it gives our elected representatives a way to say, are we okay with the damage this is going to do to the American economy to have this rule? And so there's a, it balances out those competing interests. And there were a lot of people pushing hard for that. And I I think it's one of the biggest missed opportunities of that initial 100 days of the Trump administration that they didn't pass something like that that would have done that. We'll probably have to wait for the political stars to align to get that done again. In the meanwhile, I think the only real recourse is to see what happens in the courts. I know the Pacific Legal Foundation and others are working this through again. And I and. And it's only more favorable now, the environment in the Supreme Court, to to move the needle on this than it ever has been. I think the current court probably, I'd be surprised if this current court doesn't solidify things better than even the courts in the early 2010s or whatever were doing. Um, So that's hopeful. Uh, Side note on the water of the United States rule where you're talking about the little lowland depressions or whatever that might impact farmers where you are in Utah, they're claiming that dry washes are like, so there doesn't even have to be water in the, in the thing. As long as they're for during a flash flood or something, water flows through it. 
they're going to regulate that stream bed is under the Clean Water Act. And so if you could just imagine like a dry rock riverbed sandbar is now being managed under a, a law designed to regulate pollutants in water. Wow. It just the scope creep on that regulations basically to the point of absurdity at this point. It just we really don't have a law. We just have whoever's in power at the time is arbitrarily defining what they want this to mean. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that sad? It's not the way to run a government. That's for sure. It's yeah. a way to hurt a lot of people with a government, but it's not the way to have a good government that protects a free society. Yeah. Yeah. And the divide is just getting bigger and bigger. Like to the average, you know, city-bound consumer, for example, the Endangered Species Act, it sounds like a great idea. Let's save the endangered species. Oh, they love but, the panda bears. Yeah. <laughs> but to a producer, it's so much more complicated because these rulings affect how they can conduct business, how they can protect their livestock, how they make profit, um, rules concerning like the lesser prairie chicken and wolves. It can make it so difficult on farms. What insight do you have on that? Yeah, so I think the Endangered Species Act is not really about species or animals at all. It's mm-hmm. about controlling land. It's a land management policy because the the teeth of the Endangered Species Act is the designation of habitat, which means setting aside land and water with restrictions, with the alleged intent to improve the viability of a species. And and it's written to so well to stack the deck in favor of environmental lawyers that it's really just become a cash cow for what I like the the environmentalists like to call the ranchers welfare ranchers because they're out there actually using their property, which is the forage. And because they even have to pay an administrative fee to get their permit, they think that that's the payment. So they're like, oh, they're only paying like 200 bucks a year to graze public land. I'm like, well, they own property. It's like, you have to look at that. It's more like a property tax, not a, yeah. it's not a comp, a comparable thing to if you were to go lease a field of forage from a private landowner, they, that is their field. They own it. They own, I mean, they own the actual grass that's growing. Yeah. And, but they are called welfare ranchers. Well, these are the welfare lawyers where they basically just go sue the government. The government says, oh yeah, we screwed up. You guys can have a settlement. They pay the lawyers with our tax dollars through Equal Access to Justice Act settlements, and they get paid by us to get sued by them over and over and over again. And so anywhere where the biosphere even exists, which is the whole living surface of the planet, they have an opportunity to go find some kind of species that's protected or that has the do some sort of study. The scientific standard is paper thin. They call best available science. Wow. Oftentimes that best doesn't mean it's good. And available is really loosely defined because half the time I you can't find really any good studies that back up what they're saying. And then they use that really loose, mean nothing standard to say this little thing is whatever this frog or this bird or this whatever is endangered. And then it and then you can't do anything with that land. So that's the primary tool for controlling what happens on private land. And it's certainly used to happen to control what happens on public land. Um, but you, farmers and everybody knows this because they've all been in the crosshairs of it. And if you haven't yet, you will. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I also think it's really obsolete. 
Uh, I think the definition of what a species is, it is probably something that this, this probably sounds like a little unconventional, but we kind of don't know. Like a, a species is like the two animals can reproduce together and produce offspring. That's one of the signals that you've got a species. And then other than that, it's just kind of like, can we find some definable characteristics that happen consistently? And, uh, and so it's a really weird classification that almost goes back to like Aristotle. We've been using this same system at the, and now we're in the age when we can read and codify and understand an animal at the level of their DNA. Right. And so what biodiversity really is, is just different sequences of DNA. That's all it is. And we, and we can understand that now to the molecule and so if biodiversity is really just dna then the species category just becomes totally obsolete and and we all not only can we understand dna but we can now write it like software and that's happening all the time now like we're this isn't a thing that's happening in the future it's happening now and the people who are benefiting the most from this are probably the agricultural producers who are uh, finding all kinds of new ways to either make the things they're trying to grow easier to grow, more healthy for us to eat, more resistant to the challenging conditions of the environment, or uh, na- you name it. And, they, and they've been, and, and agricultural producers have been engineering the biosphere since humans started pasturing livestock and growing wheat. Um, now we have this crazy ability to do that at a level never before seen. And so I don't see how the Endangered Species Act holds up in the onslaught of what's really happening in the actual biosphere right now. And it'll either just live on forever as some tool for meddling lawyers to get rich off the public purse, or we'll start looking at the world as it is and say, what do humans really want out of the biosphere? How careful should we be about altering it and these are all really important questions i can't even say i have all the answers but we're not even having this discussion because we're having to decide can i graze a cow here where there's a prairie chicken yeah and 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 this isn't inconsequential i mean there's stories i read last week where they're going to revive the american chestnut which is basically almost extinct because they're engineering different dna into it that'll make it resilient to some blight that came over from asia 100 years ago and so the genetic engineering will be used to recover and save species that are really at threat. Mm-hmm. And at some point you'll sp- start to see what are really the opportunistic things that are going on to just slow down American innovation, to thwart American competitiveness, to make it harder for us to feed ourselves in the world. And hopefully people will kind of wake up and I, I mean, if you haven't been to the grocery store lately, I'll spoiler alert. Things are out of whack with our food production system right now. And the city dwellers and the folks that aren't on the front lines of this are starting to pay the price for it. And I don't know how much tolerance they have for the direction things are going. So hopefully we enter an era where there's a lot of appetite for reform. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely hope so. And that, that's a really interesting perspective too. I hadn't thought about that before that now we can just create things and it, yeah, that that actually opens up a lot a lot more um paths to to think about while 
while going through all of these issues. So yeah, so I'll have to think about that more. That, yeah, that, I mean, well, that was really interesting. Conditioned to believe that biodiversity itself is an inherent good. That is the underlying yeah. premise of the Endangered Species Act is having all these species is good for the ecosystems, it's good for humans, it's good for the planet. But there's no threshold of how much biodiversity is good or bad. Like even with climate change, they can kind of come up with a number and say, if we have this many parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, we have a problem. We can't say how much is the right amount of biodiversity and how much is a dangerously low amount because we've collapsed the entire system of biodiversity six times in the history of this planet. And, And then you have these explosions and if, and if I was to bet on this and you were to say, Ben, in 10 years from now, are we going to be talking about a a, a system, a collapse of the species, a, like one of these, what do they call it, a great extinction? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to be talking about an explosion in biodiversity? Imagine the Internet in like 1995 and compare it to now. Yeah. That's where we are with genetic engineering. Right. So if we don't like shut that down rigidly with a with everything we've got all the incentives are to go and innovate new biodiversity Mm -hmm. and so you'll probably start to see that the biological record on this planet starting about the day we could sequence a genome for a few hundred dollars Mm -hmm. became a trajectory of explosion and it'll explode in our lifetimes we will see more biodiversity on this planet than has probably ever been on this planet ever in 10 years yeah. If human ingenuity starts engineering new species or new just sequences of DNA that produce things out of the biosphere. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't think that's a categorically good thing. I think there's a lot of a lot really go terrible wrong things that could go wrong. <laughs> so I don't think we should just go like blindly charging towards that future. But we should also be honest about the limitations of something like the Endangered Species Act to really guide us into that future it's like it's irrelevant now if that's really where we're headed yeah and if we're not talking about that discussion of where we're headed and no environmentalist is they all are just hung up on the endangered species Mm -hmm. act and the pandas and the frogs and the great extinctions and all these things and it's like this is the real thing that's going on in the biosphere like and and it's gonna run away from you it probably already is and none of them are even thinking about it because it's such a nice little cash cow for their organizations. Yeah, yeah. I think and it gives them so much power. Yeah. And it's the power too. The money's nice, but. Yeah, I think that's that a lot of the issues we're talking about today it is power and money, right? And and yeah. I know I had read about um, Lake Mead that they're considering permanently shutting down major marinas and facilities. So do you know what's happening there too? I do. We're on the front lines of that um, because that's affecting recreation. Um, But we can't solve the recreation challenges at a lake like Lake Mead. And Lake Powell is also as significantly challenged as Lake Mead is because we have a drought in the West and you can't live or farm or have cities or whatever in the West if you don't have a way to have a reliable source of water. It just is different. We just don't have as much as you guys have, especially in Florida. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you guys want to send some of your water to us, we'll take it. <laughs> um, but we did. We had these very forward-thinking engineering folks back in the mid-century of the 20th century that built a mind-boggling infrastructure with these dams and all the canals and the, it, the power generation that goes along with it. And they created these reservoirs that make it possible. Uh, 
but in some cases, I mean, with Lake Powell, I mean, we let's let's assume everybody's right. We are in a historic drought. Uh, in the tail end of the Obama administration, they put in place plans where they would do what they call experimental flooding to try and recover some fish species that were threatened in the Colorado River. And so that means they were releasing more water out of the dam than normally they would so that they could recover a fish through something called an experimental flood. Mm. And so rationally, you look at that and be like, I'm okay with the idea of an experimental flooding program to save fish. I like fish too. I think I want to live in a world that has these fish in it. But if we're all adapting and living to an environment of drought, those fish have also adapted to live in an environment of drought. So we shouldn't be simulating flooding during a time when nature's saying we're in drought. Right. If we get into like a more average area or we're overflowing with water, then that's a great time to simulate the drought. So you kind of see that these politics play out there. Yeah. But that's why they want to shut down the stuff in Lake Mead is because the water levels are low. They don't know if they can manage keep extending the boat ramps down to the water. The water levels are dropping a lot. And those are the tough discussions that we're having to have. And so what we've kind of, and that's also how water rights work in the West. Uh, And that would be like a whole other podcast. But our organization did come up with a plan to where they could stabilize and recover both reservoirs through a graduated series of cutbacks to the users downstream. And that would actually include a lot of agricultural producers And so they might look at our plan and say, wait, they're trying to cut me off. And my response to them is, that is the last thing I want to do. I can go in my fridge right now and find peas, carrots, and lettuce, and whatever that were all grown in these production areas in California that uses this water. So I eat, I am your customer. I don't want to cut you off. But the lake level situation is so serious that if we don't start figuring out how to cut back wherever we can, it's not unrealistic that in a year or two, it won't matter what my plan is. It won't matter what anybody's plan is. The Bureau of Reclamation is going to come to you and cut all of you off. And so if I have to choose about, we have to cut back 30% now and, and try and fix this or cut back 100% two years from now, one of those is going to collapse the whole industry. The other one's just going to create a lot of pain. And so any innovation, probably if it's done and innovation, which yeah. is what we're starting to see. Um, so you have like the state of Arizona is ready to spend a few billion dollars to build the biggest desalination plant in the world. Mm-hmm. And they want to build it on the Sea of Cortez in Mexico because you can't build a desalination plant in California. Yeah. Oh, yeah. go try it. <laughs> Gavin Newsom agreed to do it and he got shut down. Wow. Because the environmental group showed up and said no. Yeah. And so Arizona is trying to work it out with Mexico because Mexico gets cut off all the time with these water allocations. And so if they can create a dedicated source for Mexico to have a more reliable source of water and Arizona can then make sure Phoenix can continue to exist, they're willing to invest billions of dollars into that. Um, The plans are drafted up. They want to build it. The money's there. The technology's there. I mean, we desalinate 26 million acre feet of water a year on this planet. Wow. And so we have, we know how to do it. There's Mm -hmm. cost to it. It's, it's more expensive than getting it out of the stream, but if you don't have enough in the stream, it's an option. We, there's plenty of water on this planet. Mm -hmm. It's 70% water on the surface. Mm -hmm. So we can make the water thing work through engineering. And as long as we can structure in that cost, which will take time and, and include some system shocks up front, but 
there people are willing to pay it because you're not going to live without water. Right. And, and you have the Sierra club come out and say, well, that's a nice plan, but you're going to have to build that water pipeline across a national monument. And that's not allowed. It's a water pipeline. Like what's, what hurt, what's it going to hurt? Well, you'll have to, there will be a corridor for that pipeline that will involve heavy construction. And so how are you not going to damage the resources of the monument building that pipeline? It's like, okay, we do need water though, right? Do you guys agree with this? I mean, I don't know. Like they, and so that's where now this 30 by 30, this comes around full circle. That's right. Like if we're, if we're in we're setting off all this land and saying, we're not going to use this. Something as benign as building a water pipeline so that a city of 5 million people doesn't get cut off from their source of water gets legitimately challenged by a group saying we don't want it because it's going to hurt this desert. And I I guarantee if I took you out to this desert, you would just scratch your head and say, really? We can't build a pipeline here? We're hurting something here? And any rational American would probably have that same reaction, but most Americans don't pay attention to this until they have to only flush their toilet one time a day and and they can't water their lawn. And that's what's happening in California. That's what's happening in Arizona and Vegas, Utah is starting to go down that path. And and that's what happens when you live somewhere in the West. I'm, I'm assuming in California, they've never, or in Florida, they've never told you you can't water your lawn. I bet you don't even have they, sprinklers. They We do, actually. We are in dry oh, season really? now. Uh, okay. but we, it's only a couple months of dry season and we still have, you know, all the water in the canals and everything. But people still complain about it and say, don't, don't water your lawn um, okay. between wow. these hours and things like that. But you know, you get a lot of fights on Facebook, just like anything else, but you'll get the really? well driller guys going on going, um, guys, the aquifer is so high here. There's, this isn't a problem. You don't need to be. You don't yeah. I kind of assumed that. like Florida was like this thin little layer of limestone on top of basically a bunch of water. Pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. you know, okay. during Hurricane Ian, we realized just how close to the water we are. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. So they, they still do complain about it there. Well, we Americans have gotten really good about complaining about things and yes, then marginalizing yes. anybody who wants to talk just rationally about a potential solution, which is what I try to do. Yeah. And maybe I'm way off base, but we ought to at least be having the discussions because these are serious challenges. If you don't, if you can't feed your people, mm-hmm. your country falls apart. Right. And, and absolutely. that should never be the reason this country falls apart. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I would say that one of the biggest, biggest travesties of, of us as a human, you know, human race in the last hundred years is really to say, we can't talk, you know, we don't, we can't talk religion and politics in, in polite company, right? Because politics affects everything. And, And I hear so many people say, oh, I don't pay attention to politics. Well, do you realize that that Politics is running your, our food supply. They're it's running paying attention to you. It's running everything. Yes, exactly. And if you don't pay attention and then you go and there's no food, that's your fault. So, you know, I always like to open up the conversations uh, it, wherever I can go. Let's talk about it. Let's see these issues that are happening that, you know, it's a different issue in Florida than there is in Utah or, you know, even in across Canada and, you know, in Mexico, there's all these different issues, but you know, power and money and politics are driving this and we do need to talk about it. <laughs> You're absolutely yeah. right. And, and it's all interesting stuff once you really get into it, but it's, uh, 
but I get it. It's also very conflict driven. The solution, especially, I mean, if you get into like this situation, like this family, these families in Oregon, it gets so complicated. I could see why if you had were forced to confront that and say, I really live in a country that, that works that way. Sheesh, where's a football game I can watch? Uh, like, I don't want to think about that and it's not affecting me. So I'm going to go find something else to focus on because it's, they're hard, they're hard problems in it. Um, but it would sure be nice if people would get a lot more fired up about them and become part of the solution. Right. Yeah. And, and another thing, another disturbing thing about the, the 19th century modernization is that people can no longer feed themselves. And I've had a heavy burden about this, you know, over the last few years, um, you know, I make sure my kids know how to grow a garden, butcher a chicken, clean fish, cook a fish. But the majority of children and adults wouldn't even know the first step in filling their bellies if they were hungry. And um, one ray of hope that I have seen is, is you know, homesteading becoming more and more popular. And I know that you are also involved in, in trying your hand at homesteading. So what are you seeing? Yeah, key word is try. That's the try. action <laughs> verb in that sentence. Uh, so I moved to New Harmony, Utah, and it's kind of a place where you can go get a couple acres of land and have a nice house and um, I left the DC area and I wanted space and just, uh, be able to stretch out and anyway, and we, and we wanted to try it. So we did the chickens. I had a garden. I did all of that. And in the first few years, I just learned how much I am grateful for the farmers that have figured out how do I grow something when the wind blows? How do I grow something when the late frost comes? How do I, when do I grow this thing? What about when the bugs come and it like squash bugs? I didn't even know what one was until I started growing it. And now I'm like, how have we not extincted these things? Yeah. Uh, why can't we choose the extinctions? I agree. Uh, squash bugs would be the top of my list too. Yeah. They're evil. Um, yeah. And so it, I have a lot of respect for it. I, if you were to say, Ben, feed yourself, um, I would, I could probably get by actually, because I've learned how to trade services and work and help ranchers. And so, I have ranchers that help me. So I have a freezer full of beef and I've learned to kind of make that go and feed my family for a long time. So I kind of value that approach to living where you're closer to the animal. Like I, that animal is in my freezer because I helped it live. Right. Um, I was the one that made the, made it so that my friend could go take it up into the mountains and feed it grass and grow it. And I had a hand in it. Um, and I don't think I should have, I wish the system worked that he didn't need me to help him, but it's regardless <laughs> of that. And we've done the chickens, we killed, we, we raised and processed our own turkeys and all of that. So I did actually do more than 99% of people do. Yeah. Uh, mostly because I had that same thought. I, well, to, if I'm 100% honest, it's because I worked in DC for seven years, believing that we really do have really, really significant problems. I'm very worried about the national debt. I'm very worried about, in that sense, the fiscal situation of the country. I'm very worried that this administrative state can be weaponized to shut down just about anything it sets its targets on. Right. And, and the current body of Congress that's been there at least since 2006 has no appetite to fix any of it. Right. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And I suspect um, once like kind of the generation X and the millennial folks start getting back there and, getting their hands on the reins of some of the government things there. That's real. I think some of these policies, it just takes generational changes in attitudes and beliefs and whatever. 
I don't know if it'll fix it for the better or for the worse, but I think you'll see a political reset of a lot of these things in the system. Whenever you have those things, it's not done without a lot of upheaval. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, it probably wouldn't hurt to have some baseline of self-sufficiency underlying all that if you can get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll make like it sure would be nice right now to be able to go out to your own chicken coop and get eggs and have to go to try to find them in Costco because Costco doesn't have them. And so I, if you would have told me 10 years from now, do you believe you'll live in a country where Costco doesn't have eggs in 10 years? I'd be like, seems far-fetched. After seven years in Washington, I would be like, yeah, that's possible. I, wow. 50-50. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. And so I think people should invest in those skills. I think if you're not trying to grow your own food and learning how that works, you're missing. It's just an important life skill, regardless of the political climate. Yeah. But it also might come in handy regardless. And and it's it's hard. I like it's hard to get, but I do think that urban homesteading is a thing. When we lived in DC, there were a lot of people trying to do the inner indoor gardens and the rooftop gardens and the front yard gardens. And so there's a little trend going on. Um and I like and kind of the back to the landers, the preppers, like there's all kinds of interesting innovation. There's a lot of technological innovation going on here. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll see where it goes, but I, I'm intrigued by it. I can't say I'm an expert or any good at it, but like everybody I'm trying or like everybody that in the old, like back in the day, mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. I'm glad there's people that are really good at it though. Yes, for sure. So we can just walk to the fridge and get food. <laughs> it is nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I have one one last question for you. Uh, why didn't you just, you know, walk out to Utah and close the door? Why, why do you still serve in the way that you do? And what's your greatest passion in it all uh, to have this voice? Uh, well, the system does need to change. There's a lot of systemic problems. I mean, people have so little faith in any of these institutions I could go on for a long time of why I think that is. But I think it's so big and it has so much power to hurt people that even if you tried to check out and go off the grid and get out of get out of its way, it's going to find you. Yeah. And so you you once you understand it, I don't know that you can make the moral choice not to try to fix it. And our country as as challenging as some of our institutions are like the United States said, it's just completely broken. The house of representatives is slightly less problematic. Uh, the, the presidency just runs everything. They have a $4 trillion budget and no rule. They make all the rules up as they go. And if you try to challenge them in court, they have kangaroo courts and they called administrative law courts. And it's just like, we've created this monster that is, and anytime you find an American that is like really suffering under the oppressive weight of government action, you'll usually see that this it's this monster that's doing it. Yeah. And so political resets in the cards um, cyclically, I think the country goes through political cycles that tends to coincide with generational things. The baby boom generation is just coming to the end of its cycle in a, a thousand different ways literally and figuratively. And so something new is going to come in its place. It just, and you want to be part of shape, shaping what that is. If you have the connections and the knowledge and the ability and 
So that's what I'm interested in is how do I be a force for good in what's probably going to be a big reset in public land policy, agricultural policy, technological policy, big problems with like monopolies and antitrust, like concentration of economic power in certain areas. I mean, if you're a meat producer and you're not complaining about the fact that all the meat packing things are owned by foreign monopolies, it's how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Um I just think there's a lot of things that we probably see change in the next five to 10 years. And any, to the extent I can be part of any of it, that's what I want to do. That's awesome. And, and thank you for the work that you do. It's, it's good. Well, thank you, you for the work you do. It's a, 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 none of this happens without educating people. And that's, what's fun about podcasts and the internet and all these things. And, and just as soon as we get really good at any of these platforms, the powerful people are like, wait, they can't do this. They're going to get in our way. <laughs> exactly. So so be careful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I already said Glenn Beck too many times. I'm going to be suppressed yeah, on this one anyway. I already know already, that, so. So, yeah. <laughs> We'll still try to help you share it to our four friends. <laughs> but if everybody does that, we're still good. So That's right. Yeah. So where can people find you? Um, yeah. Good question. So our website for Blue Ribbon Coalition is called sharetrails.org. And if you were to go there, you find our first pop-up that comes up is signing up for email list to help us fight back against 30 by 30. Right. Uh, we're looking at this kind of through the federal land angle and kind of recreation angle. But if you want to see all the dimensions of how 30 by 30 is playing out, we're one of the few groups that's actively working against it. Um, We'd love to have you sign up for that. Mm -hmm. And that's our organization called Blue Ribbon Coalition, which that's where we are on Facebook. That's where we are on like Instagram and Twitter and those places. And then I'm Ben Burr. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter under Benjamin Burr is the handle and happy to connect with anybody. Um, if you're somebody who feels like you might need help with anything on this front, I'm always happy to have the conversation. Sometimes I'm in a good position to help. Sometimes I'm in a good information to give you free advice for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. So much to think about it and so many, uh, little different perspectives that I'm taking away from this. Thank yeah, you so much. Thanks for having me on. And if something big comes up down the road, call me back. Happy to yes, come back anytime. For sure. And thanks to everyone who's watching or listening. If you want to learn more, the links uh, are provided in the show notes. Make sure that you sign up um, at, uh, what was the URL again? Uh, sharetrails.org. Okay. Yeah. So sign up there and don't forget to subscribe to North American Egg Spotlight on YouTube, Rumble, Telegram, or Egg Fuse channels. And our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts and have a great day. Our newest podcast by North American Egg is called What Color Is Your Tractor? The stories behind the egg brands you love and the egg brands you love to hate. Hosted by me, Chrissy Wozniak. We take a deep dive into the companies that have built modern agriculture. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Go to whatcolorisyourtractor.com, available on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy, you can bid with confidence. No buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform 
for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit FastLine.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the FastLine Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m. To register for this webinar, go to NorthAmericanAg.com slash FastLine hyphen webinar. That's NorthAmericanAg.com slash FastLine hyphen webinar to register now.